0: Please take your Bibles again this morning to John chapter 16. We're going to be in uh, verses 25 through 33. John 16 verses 25 through 33. And uh, we, we discussed the first part of it last week. We're going to discuss the second part of it here this morning. But let me remind you here that in the last section here of Christ's final discourse uh, chapters 14 actually the end of chapter 13 into chapter 14, 15 and 16 are all final words that he's giving to the to his disciples before he goes to the cross. He will they will cross the Kidron, uh, go up onto the mountain there in the garden of of Gethsemane where he will then pray then will be arrested, will be taken then, and crucified on the next day. But this last section here of Christ's final discourse, in it he says, uh, here figures of speech there in verse twenty five. Uh, you know it goes back to to what he, uh, the disciples had asked earlier when he said, uh, I'm going to I'm going to go away but in a little while I'm going to come back again and they're they're questioning this. What does he mean by this uh, uh in a little while. In a little while I, you're going and and in in a little while we're going to see you again and so uh Jesus it, to them this is what Jesus refers to here as figures of speech. These are obscure utterances or dark sayings. This and they describe what could not be easily understood. In fact, Jesus said to them, Do you not understand what I mean by this? I'm going away, but in a little while i am you'll see me again? Do you not understand this? So what these dark sayings are, this obscure speech here, or figures of speech, refers to what cannot be readily understood without considerable explanation or enlightenment. And in this case, it's spiritual enlightenment that they need. What Jesus had previously spoken to the disciples only seemed to be dark sayings due to their lack of understanding. But soon, he would be able to speak to them plainly. They would have the capacity to understand the speech that jesus gave paul explains this and we touched upon that last week as well but in first corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 this natural person the natural man the one who is not born again the soukikos, soulish literally soulish person does not accept the things of the spirit of god he has no capacity to accept them. And the reason is because they're foolishness to him. The things of God are to those who are not of God foolishness, folly. You don't believe that, do you? That's stupid. That's ridiculous. Well, I want to hate to tell you this, but what the foolish man believes is far more ridiculous than the things (laughs) that Jesus mentions. They are foolishness unto him, folly to him, and he is not able, notice he's not able to understand them, because why? They are spiritually discerned. So what are, what are figures of speech, or, or, or obscure, I, re, I really think obscure utterances would be a better translation there. These obscure utterances are only obscure because you need to have the Spirit of God to give you the ability to have spiritual discernment in order to be able to comprehend what is being said. So those that are born again have received, according to verses 12 and 13. If you look at verses 12 and 13, right before verse 14 there 1 Corinthians 2, uh, it says, "...they have received the Spirit..." Who is from God. And notice here that. In order that. Here's a henna clause in the, in the Greek. Which gives a. Uh, in order that. They might understand the things freely given to them by God. So the spirit has been given to them. They've received the spirit from God. Who is from God. In order that they might understand the things freely given by God. And then notice, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's the problem here. Spiritual discernment is necessary to understand the Scripture, and Jesus made this understanding possible through His redemptive work. It was only after He died, He was buried, He was raised again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father that according to Acts chapter 2, he has poured forth this, which you now see and hear. That, that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Their understanding then was imperative because they were to have an integral part in his mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. These fellows, are they they're kind of dumb right now. They don't understand. But they need to understand. Just like you and I need to understand. We need to understand what is our place in his program what are we doing here what are we supposed to be doing here this spiritual understanding is possible only as believers search the scriptures guided by the spirit into all truth verse 13 and then they will not uh, they will not have anything at or everything at once in other words you just don't get suddenly zapped with a full understanding. What, according to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, we grow as newborn babes, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. So it's little by little, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, as we saw there from Isaiah. So then that brings us to this that day, in that day, verse 26. When, the, when that day comes, when the Holy Spirit is given, and they can be and the scriptures are completed, then in that day they can then he can speak plainly. We don't, you know, you don't need really to have a teacher. It's teachers are fine. fact God provides them God provides teachers I'm one (laughs) but you don't need a teacher you can you can find an awful lot by yourself out of the scriptures by searching the scriptures and he will open the scriptures to you and explain to you the things of Christ as you get in the Word of God so in that day his followers would understand, and here's the here's the significant thing. I'm I'm learning here. This is more and more important that in that day, his followers will understand to pray. Reading, I was reading a, a biography of Spurgeon, and there was a passage in that 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 just struck me that when he he went to the new uh, Park Street Chapel there in London, this this big facility that had been previously pastored by three great men was down now to just a handful of people. When he as a young man of just nineteen years of age, went to preach there in the in the Park Street Church, Chapel. That the one thing that concerned him was the fact that the people prayed, but they weren't praying. We ask people to pray, and you know they, they go through. And i this has troubled me for years and years when you ask people to pray and publicly. And they, they they wrote words. These phrases that come up again and again. Same thing said over and over again. No heart. No concern. Just words. Spurgeon, that really bother him. And the one thing he wanted to teach them was that they could pray and how to pray and pray with their heart that it came from inside. It came from a reality of the Spirit working in them. Not just out of their head. Oh, how we need to learn to pray. And this is what Jesus is emphasizing here. When they asked rightly, they would receive what they needed because they would have a full and open access to the Father without the need of an intermedi- inter- intermediary, an intercessor like Jesus. He said, I, you won't need to have me. You can go to the Father yourself. And you can pray. And He'll hear you. And He'll answer you. And He'll give you what you need. This access is only possible because the Father loved them. However, the Father's love was conditional. And here's what I mean by that. The Greek word that's used here for love is phileo. And it identifies a relational love conditioned on a response of the beloved. Phileo is... We, is, means love. There's there's several words in the Greek language for love, but this is this word requires a response. In fact, there's a city in uh, uh, our Greek country called Philadelphia. Comes from that same Greek word. Comes from it's a compound here, of, uh, literally two Greek words, philo and Delphia, brother, brotherly brotherly love so it's called the city of brotherly love philadelphia what kind what is phil what is brotherly love it's a love that demands a response i there's been many people that i've reached out to over the years and i've tried to be friends to with them i've tried to uh, build a relationship with them but they weren't interested you know, when a, when a person's not interested in, in reciprocating uh, your overtures of friendship, you'll lose interest then. They go away, you go away. That's this word here. The Father loves you. How does He love you? He loves you with a desire that you reciprocate that love. And when you don't reciprocate that love... Does he continue to love you? Yes, he loves you then with agape love. Agape love does not require a response, but phileo does. And Jesus deliberately uses it here because those who love him show that love by their trusting him and joining him in his mission to bring in the kingdom of God. This is what it's all about. That's what the asking is all about. I'm not asking here for, for what I want. It's asking for what I need in order to obey God, to, to live for Christ, to do the will of God in my life. So Jesus, for example, came from the Father to do the Father's will. And he, thus his followers must also have the same attitude of submission to the Father and obedience to His will. Jesus said, "The Father loves me, and I show that love to the Father, and love Him back in my obedience to Him." This understanding then was was uh, supported here when He said in in, in uh, John fifteen nine and ten, "As the Father loves me, so have I loved you." Now in this case, He uses the word agape. Abide in my love. How? That means if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And I would argue here that few Christians today fully understand the genuine, what genuine saving faith looks like. We have, I've written John Owen's uh, statement on the bulletin here. He that would be saved by Christ and not ruled by him shall not be saved by him. We are to receive a whole Christ not by halves. And I say that as an accurate statement. Thirdly, as Jesus finished the discussion, the disciples pridefully then asserted their understanding of Jesus and his mission. I mean, you know, here these guys are, they're confused in their minds and they're, and they're baffled and and they they know something's coming up here and they they're not quite sure what to expect so they you know they buck up and they bolster their own courage and their their own uh, uh, underst- think they have their understanding in these matters and so they start boastfully saying okay now we know, now we know we know we understand now and now we know that you came from God and so forth and so on i like what da carson commented concerning this he says no understanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists let me, let me say that again no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists how many how many people have had confidence oh i understand what he meant and they have not a clue they don't have a clue and that's what we have here. So that gets us into verses twenty nine and thirty two to thirty-two, where the disciples thought they understood. So li- listen to what it says. And now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of figurative speech. Now we know. We have knowledge, full knowledge, that you know all things and do not need that anyone to uh, anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Huh? Did they really believe? Did they really understand? That's the question. They formally asserted true conclusions about Jesus, and yet they failed to comprehend the truly feeble foundation on which their faith rested. James Fawcett and Brown, in their commentary, noted hardly more than before the time. For perfect plainness was yet to come. What they what they thought they understood wasn't there. It wasn't time for that yet. It was to come later. But he's they they write, having caught a glimpse of his meaning, and it was nothing more. They oh I we're beginning to catch it now. They eagerly express their satisfaction. "Oh, oh, I get a little bit. Now I know, now I understand. Do you, really?" As if glad to make anything of his words. Their conclusion, how touchingly does this show both the simplicity of their hearts and the infantile character of their faith. Well, it does show that. their simple hearts and their infantile faith. True, but, he, but I would also argue that there is self-deception involved here as well. They only thought they saw. And that also is dangerous to faith, as will be evident in the rebuke. Now we know, that's the Greek word oida, and some other translations have now we see actually means to see to perceive it's to know by perception whether real or imagined it is often what students experience in the classroom when they have asked the question of the teacher and the teacher tries to explain it and they sit there blankly staring into space just goes right over their heads now we see now we know The disciples thought they understood, but did they? And this is very similar to the event that's recorded in John 7, where many accused him of being demon-possessed. And some of the people from Jerusalem asked, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now here he is. He's, He's openly teaching in the portico of the temple. And some of the folks are looking and they're seeing him, they're just openly teaching, and they're scratching their heads and they're said they're saying, "And here he is speaking openly, and they, the authorities, say nothing to him. Here's the one they're trying to kill. But the authorities are not doing anything about it. He's openly teaching what's going on here? And then they ask the question, can it be that the authorities really know? And this is a different word. This is the Greek word, ginosko, which means they know of certainty. They they have a grasp of the truth. They know certainty that this is the Christ. Do they know for certainty that this is the Christ? These people thought they knew the whole truth they thought they had the whole story so then we read there in verse 27 but we know we have perceived through observation and drawn a conclusion where this man comes from and when Christ the Messiah appears no one will know where he comes from he can't be the Messiah see that's their conclusion this guy here, they're trying to arrest him because they want to kill him. And yet they're letting him go because do they they know he's the Messiah? But he can't be because we know. We know about him, everything there is to know, and we know that he can't be the Messiah because when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know. You see what that is? In other words we know his mom and we know his dad we watch his brothers and sisters we watched him grow up work with his dad and now you now he these claim that he is the messiah can't be because messiah we know how the messiah is going to come and he'll come suddenly out of nowhere So Jesus responded to them. He said, You know me, and you know where I came from? Where I came from? And I believe that's a question. It's a period there in, in your text. Some, some translations have an exclamation point. But I think it's a question. He says, You, you, you know me, and know where I came from? And then he said, But... I have not come of my own accord. You don't understand. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I I come from him, and he sent me. That's verses 28 and 29. In other words, you have no clue about the Christ, the Messiah, because you do not know the Father who sent him. So Jesus then rebuked the pretension of the disciples' perception. And here's the rebuke. And what he and what he does with this is to shock their attention. What? He wants to get their attention. So he will now address the response with the bad news that he that's referred to earlier. See he's he's gonna give them some bad news. So Jesus' speech here is full of exasperation and a bit of sarcasm. Do you believe? Question mark. Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed is come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. In other words, what? You say you believe? I have some information for you, gentlemen. Before this night is over, you will all desert me. You want so much that I not leave you? But I will be left alone. They're they're upset. You're going to leave us? We don't want you to leave us. We've been three and a half years with you. We don't want to be left alone. Ah, but Jesus says, Tonight, you're going to leave me alone. (laughs) So the tragedy was a result of their truly not believing. Had they believed Jesus, they would have listened to Him. See, here's the point. Had they believed Him, they would have listened to Him and obeyed Him. And And the proof of it is when they entered into Gethsemane, Jesus commanded them to watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He said that to all of them. Then He took three of them, went further into the to the garden, and said to them, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And did they obey him? No, they chose to sleep. And the result was that in spite of their previous self-confidence, they ran away and hid when when the danger came this failure was due also to, to and necessary to fulfill prophecy this is one of the one of those things in scripture that we that is it's very interesting to me we read there in mark chapter 14 verses 27 28 jesus said to them you will all fall away for it is written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered At, but after that but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee, and that is uh, that's a, a quotation here from Zechariah chapter thirteen and verse seven. And notice this: I will, I God says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So observe the sovereignty of God here: the Lord of Hosts struck the shepherd. He used used the instrumentality of men to do it, but God did it. These people weren't pulling one on God. This was what God ordained that Jesus should suffer and bleed and die on the cross. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And then it says, He turned His hand on the little ones. He did, God did. He scattered them. And it was their desertion was necessary for the fulfillment then of Zechariah's prophecy. On the other hand, it also revealed their self-serving pride because they did not uh, they, they were not in tune with the heart of Christ in this matter. And that's the same problem that you and I have we try to figure things out on our own and as a result we fail to do the will of god we need to be we need to be much concerned about that ch dodds makes a very informative statement and this i think is in his commentary on the gospel of john said it is part of the character and genius of the church that at its foundation, its members were discredited men. And its existence was not due to their faith or good character, but to what Christ had done for them as spiritually bankrupt men. Uh, we better not look at ourselves with any pride. and Oh, look what we've done for Jesus, you know. Look like how faithful we are to the Lord. Because we'll probably wind up in the same situation so here here's the point jesus chose a bunch of spiritually bankrupt men to found his church so that they could never say that it was their brilliance or their diligent prayer life or their courage of faith and conviction but because in the very hour they most needed to express that courage they failed they failed but does jesus leave them there Not at all. Jesus set about to encourage them then. He said, guys, I'm not alone. You're going to leave me alone. You don't want me to leave you, but you're going to leave me. But wait a minute, guys, listen, I'm not alone. I won't be alone. The Father is with me. Wow. I am obeying the Father, and He is with me, even as you fail me. You will leave me alone, but I'm not alone. He has not deserted me, for the one, the Father, would not forsake him. However, and then Jesus said this, and this is this is so important. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. What is he saying there? Guys, your desertion is not going to make you my enemy. You'll have peace. Peace. And I and what Jesus is doing here he is assuring them that in their failure they would not have a horrible end. Peace, in the biblical sense, is to be right with God, without enmity, no enmity. So we read in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, that's Jew and Gentile, Making peace. Tear tear down this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Bring them into one new body. So making peace. And might then reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thus killing the hostility. Man's hostility with God is destroyed. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Gentiles and Jews. So we read there in in Isaiah 32, verse 17, The effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Psalm 119, verse 165, Great peace have those who love your law Nothing can make them stumble. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace will they add to you. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 says, But you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26 verse 12, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. Isaiah 59 and verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their road crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. Romans fifteen thirteen, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He promised them peace. But that peace would be theirs even though he was not with them. They would like him be not be alone. In their day, they would have his peace in the world. And the world in which they would also have tribulation. This is where we live today. In Him, we have peace. But in the world, we have tribulation. That's thalipsis. It means a crushing weight. Translated persecution in some places. In the world, we have tribulation. But we are in Him... And in Him we have peace, His peace. So in John fourteen twenty seven, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you have His peace? Do you have His. Do you have confidence in Him. So Jesus uh, said in, said in effect that he had come to defeat the devil and to take back dominion over the creation. Jesus required was, uh, which God required of the first Adam. Notice what God said to Adam there in Genesis 1 and verse 28. Genesis 1:28, be fruitful. See, here's where we are today in the world. You need to understand this, and this is what Jesus is telling these disciples right here at this point. He's he's telling them, guys, I'm giving you my peace. I'm I'm not alone. The Father's with me. I'm on a mission, and here's my mission. My mission is to take back dominion over the creation. The dominion that God required of the first Adam. As I said there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the earth. Have dominion. Psalm 8 argues for the, purpo, for the purpose of mankind, it said that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 8 repeats almost verbatim the first directive in Genesis 1. And here's the interesting part. This this psalm is a psalm of David written 3,000 years plus after Adam's fall in the garden. And this shows God's plan for mankind remains in effect even though Satan usurped dominion. The second Adam would now be God's agent to take that dominion back from the God of this world. And we see that in the temptation. I'm I'm not going to go into that. Before Adam came... The prophet Jeremiah described the pitiful condition of the people of God under the first Adam in Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought for her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. That's what happened under the first Adam. but that changed when Jesus came from the Father to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. He is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and he did so in his cross work. So we read in Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In his humiliation, the second Adam defeated the enemy. So we read in John chapter 12 and verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And so we read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So from his seat at the Father's right hand, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open chain by triumphing over them. Colossians 2 and verse 15. The Holy Spirit then was sent to enable the people of God to finish this work. And so we read there in John chapter 16. Verses 8 through 11. And when he is come, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So now Jesus gives them the hope of triumph, which is assured in his own victory. Therefore, the saints are to take heart. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Our victory is certain. As Paul assured the Roman believers, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush satan under your feet we're going to have a part in it too amen romans 16 19 and 20 in the meantime jesus explained then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. That's that's what we're faced with right now. So believers need to put on the whole armor of God that they may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, verse 11. And beware, and do not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. And be sober-minded and watchful, for 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brother brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 5, 8-11 Remember, Romans 8.37 We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Observe the certainty of God's plan to make his people overcomers. Jesus did not say spur your courage and start playing the man. I'm depending on you. No. He said he will make us overcomers. In 1 John chapter 5 John got the message. And thus he reiterates everyone our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? First John 1 John 5, 1-5. through five. And finally, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father... We thank You for the Word. We thank You for its truth. We thank You, Lord, that Jesus Christ is our victor. And in Him we have victory. And in Him we have peace. We have victory over the devil, victory over ourselves, victory over our sins, victory over death. But He is also our peace, which has brought us back into a right relationship with God and with the people of God. Father, I pray God that you would help us to see and understand the power and the truth of the of what Jesus has just told these disciples here. Lord, that we may trust you and believe you by the holy spirit of God teaching us and guiding us and enabling in us the victory